this podcast, Justin Bogman from Starburst talks about his entrepreneurial journey to raising a startup in data warehousing space. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to another episode of Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us uh, Justin Bogman. Uh, a brief bio, Justin has spent a better part of a decade in his senior executive roles building new businesses in the data warehousing and analytics space. Prior to co-founding Starburst, Justin was vice president and general manager at Teradata, where he was responsible for company's portfolio um, of Hadoop uh, products. Prior to joining Teradata, Justin was co-founder and CEO of Hadapt, uh, the pioneer sequel on, on Hadoop uh, company that transformed Hadoop from file system to analytic database accessible to anyone with a BI tool. Hadapt was acquired by Teradata in 2014. Uh, Justin has earned a BS in computer science from University of Massachusetts at Amherst and an MBA from Yale School of Management. With that, uh, Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's talk about your journey. I think it's, um, if you can walk uh, our viewers and listeners through um, your grad days, what bring you here, what brought you to the startup journey, and then and, and, and to, like, that will be amazing. Sure, sure. So I uh, began my career actually as a software engineer. Um, you know, my undergrad was in computer science. Uh, I became a software developer. Uh, my first job was actually at Raytheon. And then I worked at a place called MIT Lincoln Lab. Uh, focused on uh, communication satellites, actually, um, and did that for a number of years, but always wanted to be an entrepreneur and really wanted to uh, try to, I guess, round out um, my my own knowledge of sort of how one would even do that and decided to go to business school. And it was really while I was in business school that I met my co-founders from my first company, Hadap. Uh, they were in the computer science department. I was working on an MBA. And I basically read a paper by um, a guy named Daniel Abadi, who was a professor there at the time. He just went, moved to uh, University of Maryland, uh, and his PhD student, uh, Camille Bidepovikovsky. And their uh, paper was something called Hadoop DB, which at the mm. time, this was like 2009, 2010, uh, was a pretty um, uh, you know, fascinating concept. Basically, they envisioned Hadoop becoming really a, a data warehousing system, an analytical database mm. system. And in order to do that, you'd have to give it an SQL interface and really give it the performance and functionality of a database system. So I, uh, I guess coming from a software background, read that paper, thought it was really cool and walked over to the computer science department, met those guys and said, hey, I think we should commercialize this. Um, and uh, fortunately was able to convince them to do that with me. And so we spun it out of the university and uh, went on to raise some venture capital and moved up to Boston and built that business over about four years and then ultimately sold that to Teradata. So that's how I ended up at Teradata. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. And and um, so... Tell us about about that decision of of uh, leaving, uh, finishing your grad school, and then and then starting a company. It's a it's a grunt work. So what what were your findings then? And what what helped you take the plunge and go for it? Yeah, 
Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it definitely did feel like a big, bold move at the time. Maybe in, in retrospect, it uh, seems like a, a smarter decision. <laughs> but at the time, I remember having some conversations with my parents about this. And uh, my mom in particular uh, was not super in favor of me. Uh, I actually left business school before finishing. I, I later went back and uh, officially earned the degree just to wow. make her happy. But, uh, but at the time, I actually took a leave of absence to go do this full time. Uh, and so it was a pretty big step. But I think what um, really encouraged me was um, just what I saw happening in sort of the big data space. And big data itself was mm -hmm. really a pretty new term at the time. Um, you know, big data companies at that point were companies like Vertica, Greenplum, Natiza. It was sort of that generation. And Cloudera was really brand new. Uh, they had raised money maybe a few months prior to that. Um, and so Hadoop was just starting to gain some, some speed, but I think what was so appealing about it was the fact that it was open source, it could really scale to handle major amounts of data, and, and certainly we all knew about data volumes growing um, broadly. And I think the key that, that really got me excited was the notion that you know, SQL um, you know, is sort of the language that enterprises have been speaking for decades in terms of how they access their data. So even though Hadoop was a new disruptive technology, I felt that SQL as a language was going to be critical to making it useful for a broader enterprise audience. And that was exactly what Daniel's research represented to me. And that was exactly what was so exciting. So um, I got really encouraged, I think, about just the market opportunity. And that was enough, at least for me, to sort of take that risk and um, and take a leave of absence from, from the university and uh, and ultimately, you know, go full time on, on Hadap. Interesting. And so tell me about um, your perception of uh, perception versus reality when it comes to starting a big data data uh, or data warehousing startup, right? So what when you plunged into this this venture Hadapt and uh, what were you thinking and what what you ended up sort of uh, what were your takeaways on some of the challenges or some of the opportunities that you think that that you have gained over uh, the time span then you're, you're building this company mm -hmm. well I, it was a tremendous learning experience on multiple levels i think um just you know a some of the things that you have to learn to to run a company of any kind uh, mm -hmm. whether it's data database related or not um <clears throat> in terms of uh, managing teams raising capital um you know building a go-to-market building and running a sales organization um, all of those, those are just, um, you know, tremendous learning experiences. And I don't think you can learn them um, by reading a book or taking a class, even though I was in business school. I, I think mm -hmm. most of that learning uh, actually was experiential, you know, just doing, doing that job and, and learning it the hard way. Um, you know, as far as the database space specifically, um, it's definitely challenging. I mean, you have some very large incumbent vendors, um, you know, Oracle, IBM, uh, Teradata, of course, as well. Uh, so you're, you're competing with the incumbents. You're also competing with, with startups. And during that particular period of time, uh, the startups were raising uh, an exceptional amount of capital. And, that, and that's still going on today. Um, but certainly prior to that period, that was not the case. You know, I think Vertica raised maybe like $30 million over mm -hmm. the entire life of the business and sold for $300 million, which was an incredible outcome for them. Um, you know, but conversely, at that point in time, Cloudera you know, ultimately went on to raise well over a billion dollars. Uh, for an open source mm -hmm. software company. Um, so that was sort of a whole nother uh, element of, of challenge. I think for us, we raised about 17 million in venture capital, which we thought was a lot of money. But uh, when you saw you know, some of these other vendors raising absurd amounts of capital, 
that became a, a challenge for us as well. They just they could build much larger sales teams. They could go to market much more aggressively than we could, and they could really subsidize their product offerings um, because they had so much capital to work with. So. Uh, those are all sort of challenges that I guess I probably couldn't have predicted at the time or certainly didn't predict. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, we wrestled with. Interesting. And one thing sort of uh, I grapple with a lot is so data warehousing is a very uh, deep in deep trenches of IT. Right. So it's, it's every business is very core and near and dear to that, um, their, their data and the, and the solutions. And how would a startup or like what what was the experience of a startup disrupting that space and getting in and saying hey no let me uh, help you with analytical modeling of or, or creating those models on on the bi uh, frameworks and you can get more data from that how was that experience of really convincing these it legacy folks to try something new we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, great question. Well, I would say actually probably first starts with, um, you know, trying your stuff out on some smaller customers first, uh, <laughs> just to, to, to make sure it works. And, and also, uh, I think earning some good testimonials um, before you, you'll probably get a, a large company to to, uh, to pull the trigger with you and, and, and sign a deal. For us, um, I, I probably shouldn't disclose the name, but we had a very large insurance company that became our first big customer at Hadapt uh, in probably the summer of 2011. So, um, you know, shortly after we joined. And that was, that was a major win for us, both in terms of dollar value, but also proving that we could win those very large enterprises. And I think to answer your question, sort of why did they pick us? Uh, I think it's because we were doing something nobody else was doing at the time. And so I think, you know, if you're going to convince a, a large company to work with a small company, you have to be doing something particularly innovative, uh, something that they just can't find somewhere else. Because the, the traditional playbook for an incumbent vendor, uh, like, for example, that particular customer was a big IBM shop, right? So the, mm. the, the typical playbook mm. is the IBM sales rep says, yeah, we're building that. Yeah, we can do that you know, no problem. And, and that's, that's super common. So I think as a startup, that's what you have to contend with. Um, and, you know, your, your offering better be sufficiently compelling and differentiated. And, uh, you know, you've got to be able to convince the customer that, um, you know, they need this and, and they're not going to be able to find it anywhere else. And I think for us, at least at that particular period of time, we were really the only ones with the compelling uh, SQL engine for you. Hive was the only alternative and Hive mm -hmm. was very slow, it was batch oriented. Um, so it was, uh, it was a pretty compelling differentiation there. And, and also I would say there's a little bit of luck involved too because we were fortunate that the, the buyer, this, this um, sort of data IT architect on the customer side was very visionary. He wanted mm -hmm. to do something aggressive and new and different uh, and ultimately save his company a lot of money, which he did. I think it, mm. it worked out well for him. Um, but you need to find sort of those champions as well, those those folks who are thinking forward and, and want to take some risks. Interesting. And and to entrepreneurs who are listening uh, or, or who are sort of watching this, what are some of some of some of the hacks you could suggest to get a seat on the table, where mm -hmm. where you have these influence like these visionaries, these early early adapters, or Anyone who can take a chance with a startup with a very innovative and very sort of uh, creative way to do a very disruptive thing. So what what would you suggest to those guys? 
Well, A, I would say do a lot of networking. And what I mean by that is, you know, go to meetups, go to conferences. Um, you know, you'll generally find, I think, the more progressive, visionary-minded uh, on, on the customer side who, who attend these things. They want to learn about what's new. They're, they're engaged. They're interested. Those are the right people to meet. Um, uh, you know, the, the ones who never get out of, of the shop, you know, probably aren't as aware, aware of these new technologies anyhow and probably aren't the best uh, prospect for you. So, you know, network your butt off. Try to meet those, those visionary folks who are, are thinking about what's next. Uh, I think that's one important step. And then, you know, as a more tactical matter, um, you know, one, one fear that big companies have of doing business with small companies is this idea that the small company may go out of business mm -hmm. and then what do they do with the product? You know, it's no longer supported. How do they operate this thing? You know, their money just went you know, totally to waste. And one tactical way you can mitigate that is offer to put it in escrow, put the source code in escrow, if it's a proprietary product. If it's open source, you actually have a little bit of a, an easier time because you can say, look, it's open source anyways. Mm. Um, you have access to the source code. If it's proprietary, offer to put it into an escrow and the escrow agreement would just say, you know, if, if, uh, if the company in, in our case, Adapt, let's say, you know, went out of business, then, um, you know, that customer would have access to the source code and, and have, you know, the rights to be able to use that in perpetuity, you know, going forward. So sometimes that will get people over the hump mm. uh, and make them feel sufficiently comfortable taking that risk. Interesting. And, and, um, Getting your first few customers, I think that's always very critical for any business, right? So, because many, like we hear a lot of stories about folks diluting into something totally different because the customer demands and it's it's derailing them from their traditional, typical uh, visionary road, roadmap cycles. What has been your experience uh, with that? Like uh, finding a, a right customer vis-a-vis wrong customer, like how could one ensure that the customer that you get um, are the right customer and you are doing anything and everything to help them or, or like, what are your thoughts on those, on, on that? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, I guess a couple, couple thoughts on that. First of all, I would try to find customers who are uh, at a particular inflection point um, in, in terms of needing to make a decision and make a transition from, you know, one solution to another. It's very hard to just sort of go in and rip and replace one solution and replace it with, an, with another uh, if there isn't a, a burning need to do so. So, you know, an example today might be uh, uh, an organization makes the decision to go from on-prem into the cloud. That's a very mm -hmm. common decision, mm -hmm. I think, being discussed, you know, pretty much universally in, in all enterprises today. And that's a really wonderful catalyst, I think, for a new vendor to come in and say, okay, so now you've decided you're going to the cloud. What are the things that you need to be successful in the cloud? And uh, if you have an offering there, you know, I think that's a, a compelling event to uh, to drive a decision process. So I would sort of try to look for companies who are at that point in time where there is some kind of transition being driven. Um, you know, I, I guess um, in addition to that, you know, another piece of advice I would give is uh, always try to remain focused. I think there's also a very common, um, uh, I guess, um, sort of, um, attraction to doing whatever will pay the bills. So, you know, a customer may come to you and say, uh, I need X, but really you're in the business of building Y. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, it can be very enticing to go out and, and build X for them because there's dollars associated with that. But every time you do that, you distract yourself from your mm -hmm. core mission and you're losing time ultimately. And, and your engineering resources, uh, you know, represent, um, you know, opportunity cost. If you deploy them on, 
uh, on, on something that is not core to your business, you're, you're really wasting time. And, and time is, is critical. Uh, whether mm-hmm. you're venture-backed, then time is a very uh, you know, real thing. Or even if you're not venture-backed, you're still competing against you know, others in your space who ultimately believe in the same kind of vision. And it's going to be a race to, to see who can fulfill that vision first. So uh, I think that would be another piece of advice. You know, you know, even if you find a customer that you think is great, but what they're offering or what they want from you is not what you really want to build, Mm. Uh, you might have to say no and that's that can be tough we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast interesting and so i think you raised an interesting point about being venture backed uh, so in in case of uh, adapt and then uh, what were some of the indicators that say hey let me like or, or as an entrepreneur build, building a uh, data warehousing or or data or data analytics company what what are some of the indicators that points me to hey now is the time to maybe i should go and and um, get get some venture help mm-hmm. what are your thoughts and, and and take on that yeah sure uh, and, you know, it's interesting, Hadapt and, and Starburst, sort of my new company, are, are very different in this respect. So there's a good mm-hmm. uh, compare and contrast there. But with respect to Hadapt, I mean, ultimately, A, we were building a, a proprietary product at, at that mm-hmm. point in time. And the development we were doing was truly new, cutting edge. Um, you know, we filed six or seven patents over that period of time. There was a lot of uh, heavy lifting, a lot of rocket science mm-hmm. that we were trying mm-hmm. to invent and put into that product. And so there really wasn't any conceivable way that we could think of, of how we would bootstrap that business. Um, mm. So we really needed capital up front. Mm. And for us, um, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we had a proof of con- or a, a, a prototype, I should say, of, of our product that came from the research uh, that was done at Yale. And we used that with a few small early customers to sort of prove out the value proposition. Mm. And that ultimately helped us to go raise initially a seed financing. We raised about 1.5 million originally. And then we did a, a much larger nine and a half million dollar round um, from Bessemer and Norwest uh, to ultimately grow the, the business and, and build the product out. Um, so I think in our case, we felt like we, we had to do that just given the, the scale and nature of the product that we were building. Um, you know, another reason to potentially raise capital uh, beyond that is to scale out your go-to-market. So uh, eventually, if you're trying to scale your business, uh, you need to hire sales reps. And, mm. you know, there's there's quite a bit of upfront cost associated with ramping up that go-to-market. So that's another reason uh, to potentially raise capital. Interesting. And and regarding having co-founders, I think, so this is one of the um, other things that we have been really asked for, from our community members was, Hey, who should I hire as a co-founder? It's it's always a a struggle. What are mm-hmm. your key takeaways? Like, what uh, you were lucky to have uh, someone from business background and few people from t- technical background. What's your what's your magic sauce when it comes to putting together a a company that is selling to say enterprise client like uh, data warehousing folks? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing I would say is uh, try to find people with complementary skill sets. You know, uh, you don't want three people who do the same exact thing. Uh, that that mm. sort of redundancy and a lot of equity, quite frankly, on the cap table that's overlapping. Um, so I think the key is trying to find different people who complement one another, uh, where the skills don't have a lot of overlap. Um, in my case, yeah, I was the the quote unquote business guy, even though I came from a technical background. Mm-hmm. My my co-founders mm-hmm. were you know vastly superior to me in in terms of their technical depth. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I handled the, the business aspects. Daniel was just, you know, a total visionary uh, from a database uh, perspective and uh, added a lot of value, both in terms of our thought leadership and our architecture and uh, actually has a great intuition for uh, sort of what the market is looking for as well. Uh, and then Camille was the PhD student who had actually built this prototype. And so mm-hmm. from an operational day-to-day perspective, uh, he was really important to our engineering efforts. And uh, and actually, over the course of Hadapt, it developed into really a great, um, you know, uh, great mind for sort of a solution architecture, I would say. He's, he's actually great with customers now as well. Um, so, you know, again, just try to find people that complement you uh, rather than, than overlap. Interesting. Uh, that's thank you so much for for sharing that takeaway. Um, another thing to talk about is so seed, right? So um, getting getting yourself into in, into seed first, and then and then getting raising a, a serious round there after that. So um, what so what are some of the some of the from your vantage point? What are some of the advantages of of going seed um, and vis a vis of uh, just straight going to um, series A? So what's what's your mm-hmm. take on take on take on that? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say sometimes you, you can't raise a Series A right away. Sometimes mm-hmm. the, the bigger investors won't take you seriously yet. You haven't de-risked the venture sufficiently. And, and really, from their standpoint, I think it's all about mm-hmm. uh, mitigating and managing risk. That's sort of their, their job. That's the way they think about things, uh, you know, weighing the opportunity versus uh, the risk associated with it. So I think uh, seed rounds offer a great opportunity really probably for both sides to be able to de-risk the venture and prove it out. Um, and so in our case, uh, you know, I mentioned that, that very large insurance company that we won. That was during our seed round. We, we had raised 1.5 initially. We started to build out the product. Um, the team was still very small. We were, you know, probably less than 10 people, almost exclusively engineering. Uh, I was the only one selling at that point in time. And, uh, you know, we were able to close that, that very large uh, insurance company, which was a, a great deal for us. And that ultimately triggered a, a very competitive round for us uh, for the Series mm. A. A lot of venture capitalists suddenly became very interested once they saw that happen. Uh, and that drove you know, a good valuation for us and ultimately a, a good Series A uh, fundraising process. Um, so I think it's, it's an opportunity for you to sort of prove yourself and it's opportunity mm. for Series A investors to see some risk taken out of the business. Interesting. And, and so um, now considering you're onto your uh, second startup and then you have a, and we'll talk about uh, a later part about your journey uh, through, through sort of your exit and then, then coming out. So one other thing um, that, that um, so when it comes to um, going for a seed round or going for a series A round, um, were there any sort of qualifiers that, hey, I'm ready? Like if I do, if I hit A, B and C, then probably I sh- I'm ready for, this, for the series. And if I do C, D and E, probably I'm, I'm ready for series A. Like, do you have any, any, any thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely important to set milestones for yourself and also, uh, you know, assuming you're confident in hitting those milestones, communicate those with uh, your potential investors as well. Because I think another part of reinforcing uh, risk being removed from the the business and also building trust with investors is saying, I'm going to do X and then you actually do X and they say, okay, wow, this, this, you know, this team can deliver on uh, what they promise. So uh, I think setting milestones is important. I think for us, uh, I'm trying to remember back then, um, you know, I think probably our, our first milestones were really, uh, were really, I think just to get some early 
uh, beta customers um, and finish kind of the first version of the product. And I think that was really our goal. And so I think actually winning that insurance company was kind of a bonus to us. I don't think we would have expected uh, mm-hmm. to get a deal that large at that point in time uh, with, with such an awesome uh, particular company. Uh, so I think that was a bonus. I think also another uh, milestone for us was building out the team. So we hired um, a VP of engineering. Uh, we added some people to the board. Uh, we added some people to our advisors, uh, board of our advisors as well. And all of that, I think, started to, um, you know, strengthen the the overall team and ability to execute uh, on our vision. Um, so those are sort of our, our seed milestones. Series A, I think, became far more commercially oriented. I think mm. uh, we had some revenue targets, customer targets, um, and those were sort of the milestones for the for the next raise. But I think, yeah, you know, every time you raise money, you want to have a clear goal in, in mind. And you want to also make sure that you can achieve that goal in the time frame that that capital provides. And for most people, that's maybe 18 months, let's say, uh, of runway. So you, know, you want to make sure you can do that. Yep. And and so uh, and we, we get this mixed responses from a lot of entrepreneurs uh, in our community about having uh, a good advisory sort of uh, when you're early, get good advisors uh, to help help your company. What so? I, I want your perspective on what's your definition of a good advisor. Uh, like, what do you call a, a like? A, if if someone is helping me, those if it checks this, that box is probably I'll I'll add him to my advisory. Or, or mm-hmm. what's your thoughts? Um, I I think they can take a lot of different roles. Um, you know, I think it could be someone on the customer side who understands the the value proposition that you're trying to deliver on. So that they might be able to provide great product input. Uh, and so from that standpoint, that's valuable. It could be someone uh, who's particularly well connected in the industry and maybe will be able to offer introductions as you need them as you grow the business. So that would be another reason. Uh, I think, you know, a third reason, and this is probably the most important in my mind for any first time CEO or first time founder is to find somebody who has a lot of operating experience in those kinds mm-hmm. of environments. And I was very lucky to have uh, actually three tremendous um, mentors in that respect. Uh, early on, um, someone named Shamila Mulligan, who was the chief marketing officer at Aster Data at the time, and is just a total rock star from a marketing standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, later, uh, a, guy, a guy named uh, Jit Saxena, who was the CEO and founder of Natiza and is also amazing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Chris Lynch, who was the CEO of Vertica, who spent a lot of time with me and uh, taught me probably everything I know about um, sort of sales and marketing. All, all, all great guys, and and, and yeah, kudos to even Chris Lynch. He has been helping us uh, in our journey as well. So, amazing guy, and uh, couldn't say it any better. So that's that's beautiful. So now let's talk about slightly uh, for slightly more mature company got through the venture funding and all exits. So tell us uh, what are some of from your vantage point, whatever you can share. Um, what so Teradata, what was it exit? Why? What, are the, what is the thinking that went, went into it as an entrepreneur running this venture? And, and if you can just walk us through, what are some of the uh, takeaways from, the, from that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for us, it was, it was a pretty opportunistic um, decision at the time. I think um, you know, there were both market challenges for us uh, in terms of um, the uh, emerging open source alternatives, I would say, to, to what we had built, right? So we had built a proprietary SQL engine. It was, it was really the first, I would say, production enterprise-grade SQL engine. Uh, we thought it was the best uh, mm. you know, enterprise-grade SQL engine. 
but it quickly became not the only one. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Cloudera introduced Impala, Hortonworks over time made Hive, you know, better and better. Um, uh, but I would say Impala was probably the biggest impact to us. When, when mm -hmm. Cloudera introduced that as free and open source and included in the distribution, um, it was sort of like, uh, you know, Netscape and Internet Explorer in the 90s, right? Like suddenly Internet Explorer comes with Windows. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was a, an important inflection point for Netscape, I think, as a company. Um, so, you know, I think that was that was one challenge for us in terms of lengthening sales cycles. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we now had to compete with free, which is just a, a very different challenge that we hadn't been competing with. Prior to that, we were competing with uh, other actually more expensive traditional database systems, you know, the Vertica's mm -hmm. Green Plunge, the Matisse's and so forth. So uh, so that was a big change for us. But simultaneous to that, um, we were having some really good uh, partnership discussions with some of the larger vendors that ultimately turned into um, uh, acquisition interest and um, decided at the time uh, that, you know, the offer on the table was was worth taking, um, particularly in light of uh, just the additional venture capital that the other Hadoop players had raised and how much more we felt like we would have to go raise, which just sort of raises the stakes uh, in terms of being able to get a really good outcome at the end. So. Uh, we took what was on the table, and and I think it was the right decision. Interesting. And now, uh, you being uh, uh, a general manager there, uh, sort of maintaining this this Hadoop infrastructure, um, what's what has been your uh, sort of uh, perspective on your vantage point on what you what you have seen in the in when you were in as as a budding entrepreneur, uh, having succeeded, vis a vis. Visa um, is uh, doing this um, so-called uh, in, in a very enterprise environment, very big corporation. Uh, what what was your sort of takeaway uh, or, or differences that you have seen? Um, well, I mean, uh, yeah, very different. I mean, uh, you know, Teradata is something like two and a half billion in revenue and ten thousand people, very global. Um, you know, has incredible customers. Um, uh, incredible technology that that's been successful for a very long time. Uh, so very different, I would say, company experience mm -hmm. uh, relative to you know the, the struggles of of uh, fighting it out as a startup trying to grow your business. Um, you know, I think uh, it was interesting to continue to watch the Hadoop ecosystem evolve over time, mm -hmm. and I think I, I think actually it probably became more and more clear over time that the decision to sell when we did probably was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Simply because the stakes continued to raise, and ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, Hortonworks and Cloudera uh, both went public, but neither mm -hmm. IPO was really, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that spectacular probably mm -hmm. for for the investors previous to that. I, I think mm -hmm. in in both cases they ended up going public for, uh, you know, lower valuations than mm -hmm. their last private rounds. Um, so I think um, you know Chris Lynch was one of our investors, and I think he he uh, was probably happy as well that we were able to to uh, to get out when we did, and and um, you know, not sort of have that that kind of trajectory that some of the others have, have had to struggle with. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, it was, Teradata was an awesome experience. I was also lucky to have great mentors there as well. Um, Scott Now, uh, who's now the CTO of Hortonworks, actually, mm -hmm. he was uh, the president of Teradata Labs. He was really the one who, who ultimately bought Adapt. Uh, and so I got to work very closely with him for, for a while, while while he was still there and uh, learned a tremendous amount from him. And then, uh, and then later, Oliver Ratzesberger, who, who took over for Scott, uh, also an incredible guy. I learned a lot from him as well. Interesting. So, um, 
thank you so much for sharing that story now let's talk about your current journey like uh, so uh, what made you so you did a startup take that plunge succeeded beautifully got into this this company having a good life why jump back like what's what's what what's what what's your perspective on that uh, i think there's just something incredibly um thrilling and and fulfilling honestly of of building something from scratch um you know it's just a it's a totally different experience i think big companies have a lot of momentum a lot of inertia it's sort of hard to change direction very quickly uh and by contrast in a startup you know you can change direction five times in one day and mm-hmm. um and sometimes that's what you need to do i think as you're as you're figuring out product market fit and and adapting to uh the market which is always changing so Uh, I think there's something just incredibly exciting about that, and again, you know, creating something from scratch and hopefully having a, an impact uh, on the world in in that way. Interesting. So now walk us through Starburst. Uh, what what is that? And then uh, if you can if you can shed some light on what you're doing there. Sure. So Starburst is very different in in a lot of ways. Well, it's actually very much the same and very different. I guess I would say. Uh, you know, in some ways, when I when I talk to friends, they're like, "This sounds like you're doing Hadapt again." um because it is another sequel engine for Hadoop mm-hmm. but what's so different about it i think is both the way the company was started and also uh the product offering itself in this case we're focused on entirely an open source project called Presto which was created mm-hmm. at Facebook uh it's uh super fast uh, we can talk about some of the the benefits of Presto itself um but um the company formation is is also particularly unique we we ultimately actually got involved with Presto while we were at Teradata It was one of the projects within my group um in the uh, the Center for Hadoop at Teradata and uh we actually became major committers to the project in fact we're the the largest committers outside of Facebook uh to the Presto project and I think we we recently uh discovered that we've contributed close to a quarter of the entire code base I think uh wow. in Presto is actually written by our team which wow. is pretty cool um and then uh just this past fall actually we decided to try to do this as an independent company with Teradata's blessing so we we have a, a an important partnership there where they can continue to uh sell uh Presto support as well we ultimately deliver it on on the back end um which gives us the ability to continue to serve some incredible customers so you know we talked about the challenges of a startup uh winning you know those big names initially in this case we get to start with them so we have about 15 you know enterprise uh, fortune 500 customers which are which are just awesome uh there's obviously revenue that comes from that so we don't have a need to go out and raise capital right away which is also uh, very refreshing um and we're dealing with a super popular open source project that just seems to be gaining mm-hmm. momentum um you know originally created at facebook then netflix airbnb uh, got involved you know now uber dropbox twitter i mean the, the list just sort of goes on and on Uh, of uh leading companies using this technology. So, it's a very interesting uh, and different starting point. We're also starting with a, a complete engineering team, which which is also a a great advantage. Um so now we're just focused on sort of how do we grow and and scale this business. Interesting. So, uh what is Presto? Uh for for our folks who who are not aware of this. Yep. So it it is a SQL engine um you know Facebook actually created Hive back in the in mid 2000s so they were very early on this whole notion of of thinking about Hadoop as a data warehouse um you know they may have been the only people thinking about this before Daniel Abadi quite frankly uh, my my co-founder from Hadoop so uh you know much respect to them and and everything they've done they ultimately realized pretty early on as we did actually in in our first company that Hive just wasn't going to be fast enough to really deliver true ad hoc 
analytical you know, queries, uh, being able to power BI tools, for example, uh, sort of traditional enterprise analytics, um, you know, just wasn't, wasn't what Hive was really intended for at the time. It's still great for ETL workloads, long batch oriented workloads, you know, Hive is great, but for those sort of interactive queries, uh, you know, really not the ideal solution. So they created Presto as really a, a replacement or a successor project to that. Um, you know, speed is sort of um, priority number one, but I think also what separates it from other SQL engines is the fact that from the beginning, it was designed with this concept of, of sort of separating the query engine from, from storage. So rather mm -hmm. than having storage combined with, with your, your query engine, uh, like a traditional database system where you store data in Oracle mm -hmm. and run queries in Oracle, for example, you can actually store data in in anything, anywhere, and and I think that's what makes it so flexible. So you know that can be any traditional Hadoop file format, Avro, Parquet, uh, ORC file. Uh, it could be other database systems, MySQL, Postgres. Uh, it could be NoSQL systems like Cassandra, Mongo. Um, there's connectors for those as well. And then I would say probably the fastest growing use case that we see is being able to access data in S3 directly or other mm. S3 compatible object stores, whether that's on-prem object stores like Ceph from Red Hat or, uh, you know, cool new startups like Minio, if, if you've come across them, um, or if you're in Azure, you know, blob storage. So it's kind of like the Swiss army knife of SQL engines. It can query anything. It is open source. So you have that vendor neutrality, that, that sort of distribution neutrality, that cloud neutrality aspect, which I think customers are increasingly uh, looking for. Uh, and gives you a lot of leverage. You, know, you can sort of deploy it in, in a multiple multitude of different ways. Interesting. So, um, great. So, so what what I'm what I'm hearing is so it's a great platform for SQL. It it could like for cloud. So sorry. So if anyone is moving to cloud, uh, Presto would be a, a a great sort of engine for them. Am am I hearing it right? So what's your take? Like uh, how why is it is is it effective for for the cloud frameworks to use Presto, if at all? Yeah, I mean, both cloud and on-prem. I would say on-prem, where we see it most often, is is probably somewhere where somebody has Hadoop as a as a mm -hmm. file system, and they either want to query that, you know, very quickly, or uh, we see a lot of use cases on-prem where they want to join between two systems. So we built a connector for Teradata, for example. So you, you might have a Teradata system, or an IBM system, or an Oracle system, or Microsoft SQL Server system. And you have data both in, in one of those systems and in HDFS, and you want to join tables across these systems. Uh, that's a great use case for Presto. But as, as for the cloud, yeah, I think that's probably the fastest growing area simply because uh, it feels like you know, S3 or, or object stores in general are sort of becoming mm -hmm. the new data lake. And if that's the new paradigm where you're going to leave data in S3 and you want to be able to read it directly rather than having to load it into a database system first, uh, or even without having to load it into EC2. I mean, you just leave it in S3. Um, you know, that's that's an awesome use case for Presto. Interesting. And so, what is Starburst's use case uh, in so in in Presto's ecosystem? What do you guys deliver on? Yep. So, you know, we're trying to be you know the Presto company essentially, and 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 in doing so, we have you know the 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 largest team of committers outside of of course Facebook who created the project. Uh, and we're able to offer uh, enterprise support. So that's sort of, you know, one reason that's probably the first reason people uh, discover us is they want to deploy Presto in production and they want a 24 by 7 support SLA. So we do that uh, all the time. Uh, we also have our own distribution of Presto, by the way, which uh, is a little bit more thoroughly tested than what you'll find on, on GitHub from the main branch. 
Uh, we do a lot of regression testing, and then we're always building and adding features to it that you'll find in our distribution first. So for example, uh, just last week, we introduced a cost-based query optimizer for Presto. So uh, suddenly performance is improving, uh, has just improved by about 10 to 15x uh, what it was uh, you know, just a couple weeks ago. And so that's a huge performance boost that you'll find in our distribution first. It'll ultimately go back into the main open source branch where we're you know, continuing to commit to, uh, to the, the main branch. And that's very important, I think, to our identity and, and um, you know, who, who we ultimately wanna be as, as sort of stewards of the community. But, um, but you know, one of the reasons we, we, we hope customers you know, think about using our distribution is you'll find it there first. And uh, those are the distribution, that's the distribution that you can get support for. So ultimately it's, it's our own distribution, it's support. Uh, you know, you get some influence into the roadmap because we're, we're obviously driving it in conjunction with our colleagues at, at Facebook. Um, so that's sometimes uh, of, uh, of value to customers. Uh, we also offer training and, and services and so forth as well. Interesting. So now um, if say I'm an enterprise um, IT architect and I'm, I've been dealing with um, old school Oracle and, and, and IBM is setups uh, for my for my data processing need. And now I hear about this word called Presto. Uh, what do you suggest? Where should I start um, to start deploying? Well, um, I, I would suggest, and, and I guess this sounds like a plug, but I would say download our distribution. And, and the, the reason I say that is I think it's the easiest to deploy um, and, and get started with. Um, we've been trying to pick up uh, our pace in terms of writing blogs to sort of, um, you know, give tips and tricks on, on how to deploy these sorts of architectures. So you can certainly check out our blog. Um, but then there's also a ton of stuff in the community. I would say, you know, mm. if, if you search for uh, Presto Netflix, Presto Airbnb, mm. Presto, um, you know, Uber, uh, you'll find some awesome engineering blogs of how they deploy it. Uh, Presto Facebook, of course. Um, mm. So there's a lot out there uh, from you know, major customers and how they're deploying it uh, that I think you can learn from. Um, there's also a, uh, a Presto uh, Google group that you can join. Um, there's a Presto Slack. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways you can get involved in, in the community as well. Interesting. So now um, um, you have a, a quite a sort of um, in-depth experience in data warehousing solutions, having done two startups, one sort of um, uh, multi-billion dollar revenue company working with them. So uh, what's your take on the health of enterprise data? Like what, what, have, what are you seeing that the world is transforming to when it comes to dealing with enterprise data? Yep. I mean, I think maybe the two biggest trends that I'm you know, focused on right now are one, just the move to the cloud. I mean, we've been talking about the cloud probably mm -hmm. for close to a decade, but it's really happening right now. You know, in, in the early days, it was, there was more hype than substance today. It's very much a real thing. People are moving, you know, tons and tons of data to the cloud, moving new use cases to the cloud. And I think simultaneous to that, I think customers are getting very smart, I would say, about um, trying to create um, independent sort of future-proof architectures as, as they're thinking about building out their architectures. And by that, I mean, choosing open source wherever possible, um, mixing and matching components that are pluggable and interchangeable, um, really creating leverage, quite frankly, uh, relative to, to vendors. And, and I say this, obviously, we're a vendor uh, to mm -hmm. some extent, but, um, but you know, I think this is a great time to be a customer, quite frankly. I think you know, the old days, you, you bought a very expensive system, you mm -hmm. deployed it, and you were sort of stuck with it for a very long time. 
Uh, and I think in the new world, uh, there's so many opportunities to create leverage. Um, you know, FINRA is an awesome example of this. They're, they happen to be a very large Presto user, um, but they're, they're also one that, you know, moved to the cloud in the last few years and really rethought their entire architecture in the process. And as a result, um, they've chosen to be uh, very deliberate about the tools that they choose, uh, wanting to maintain that leverage, uh, you know, everywhere they can um, so that they can change components out. Uh, if, you know, one vendor becomes, you know, too expensive, uh, they sort of have that infinite flexibility. They could move from one cloud to another. They could move, you know, from one technology to, to another, from one vendor to another. So uh, I think that in conjunction with this move to the cloud is um, are two really interesting trends. And then I'll, I'll just add to that, I guess, you know, the, the notion of the object store becoming the default resting place for data. Um, you know, again, whether that's S3 or other object stores, mm. we're just seeing a ton of that as well. Interesting. And not tell about what Presto is not good for, like, so which kind of customers I should not even care about Presto? Or is, is there anything like that? Did you think? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, who is it not good for? Um, I mean, well, I guess it's worth say, stating up front that Presto is is an analytical database system. Uh, mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's it's not for transactional workloads. So you certainly wouldn't use it um, in place of, uh, you know, a Cassandra or MongoDB type of use case. Those are definitely uh, you know different use cases. Um, you know, I think there are also situations where. Um, uh, you know, you might want to use Spark, let's say, for machine learning jobs that you're developing. Um, those are probably also not the right use cases. So really, you know, Presto's focus on those analytical data warehousing style queries. That's really its, its bread and butter. Interesting. Now, um, getting back to my previous question on sort of your perspective where the industry is heading um, or it's transforming to right now. What is the future of uh, enterprise data? Like from, from your vantage point, having... Uh, involved in at least good chunk for the new transforming technologies. What do you think are the adoption rate in enterprise sector? And what do you think where we are heading to when it comes to da enterprise data? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, if you're in this space, you're in the right place. I think you probably have in, infinite uh, job security. I think there's going to be, uh, you know, just tremendous data growth and, and, and new use cases to, to leverage all of that data. Uh, obviously, AI is a very hot topic right now, but you also sort of need to get your, your, your big data infrastructure right before you can even do AI and machine learning uh, types of, of, of use cases. So I think all of that is very big. I think uh, increasingly, again, moving things to the cloud, making things as self-service and easy to use and deploy as possible is also important. Um, I think there's going to be uh, continued emphasis on trying to hire the right talent. I think that continues to be a gating factor for a lot of uh, customers, unfortunately, at this point, is trying to acquire that talent. And if you're not Facebook or Google, uh, that can be particularly challenging. Um, and so we see a lot of customers struggle with that as well. Interesting. And, and now getting back to your entrepreneurial journey and now on, on to a second stint, right? So what are some of the parallels that you are seeing? And I think the market so now you're more in open source space now previously you were more on proprietary angle what are some of the parallels that you could draw or what are some of the some of the totally transformational aspect that you're seeing having on your second stint on the on on the startup journey mm -hmm. um yeah well <clears throat> i mean i do think um uh, well, it, it depends on the type of company or the type of product you're offering. But I think uh, if you're in a space where there are really good uh, open source alternatives, I think it's 
increasingly hard to build a proprietary company unless mm-hmm. uh, I think the one exception to that is if you're a really compelling SaaS offering um, mm-hmm. where part of the value that you're providing is basically you're eliminating the, the complexity of, of managing the infrastructure. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, like we're seeing Snowflake is doing pretty well in, in that respect. It's obviously not open source. Um, mm-hmm. There's really nothing open about it. I mean, it's, it's formats are proprietary and, and so forth, but, um, but, you know, they built a great database system and it is a SaaS offering. And so that model does seem to work. Um, in the on-prem world, I think that's that's much harder at this point. I think I don't think you could really build a, a proprietary database system uh, in the on-prem world uh, as a new you know entrant at this point. I, I think that's that's really tough. There's just too many open source alternatives. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, you know, I think there's also a a trend, or at least a, certainly a desire, to build business models that are more uh, self-service in their nature, meaning that. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts with uh, a visit to a website, which leads to a download, which leads to a sort of self-evaluation of the product. And ultimately, uh, you can have an inside sales team uh, reaching out to uh, those folks and, and trying to convert them to, to paying customers, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the traditional model of uh, having expensive field sales teams uh, in every major city. Um, you know, which, which is expensive, longer sales cycles, um, they can be bigger deals, but uh, there's a lot of expense and, and, um, and time associated with, with that. So I think trying to create more self-service, higher velocity business models is also uh, very appealing. Interesting. And so if, if, if I'm a startup um, in, in infrastructure space, uh, in, in data management or data infrastructure, so would you suggest aligning with a, with a open source initiative or would give me better chances to getting a seat in the table when it comes to meeting with clients and, and enterprise prospects? Or do you think that the chances are still um, in my favor if I, if I have an enterprise play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think aligning with open source makes a lot of sense. If, if, if the story makes sense with, with your product, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, the beauty of open source, um, there, there can be challenges monetizing it. And I, again, I think you can, you can look at other vendors. Red Hat's the only one who's done it like mm. particularly well. And, and now I would actually say Amazon does a great job of monetizing mm. open source that, um, you know, that exists out there. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, the beauty of open source is that it has sort of a viral nature to it. I mean, mm. it, it is, uh, the, the adoption, uh, you know, is very organic and, uh, and widespread. It's very easy for a engineer, let's say, at a, at, a, at a customer to download an open source project and start working with it without having to go and get, you know, 10 approvals to, to go buy software. So, uh, so I think open source has this natural tendency to be very pervasive. And if you can connect yourself to that in some way um, with, with whatever offering you, you have, I think that um, that probably does strengthen your story. Interesting. Um, by the way, thank you so much. Uh, that was really helpful. So, um, as a CEO or as 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 a uh, of 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 a startup, what are some of the KPIs that you care about? Um, uh, if you can sh- shed some light on that. Well, I mean, revenue is the the ultimate KPI, but I I think mm-hmm. in uh, in this startup in particular, given that we we have an open source product, we have an open source distribution that's freely downloadable. Downloads mm-hmm. is probably my my most important KPI. Um, mm-hmm. You know, visits to, to the website is is sort of uh, an early indicator. I mean, that's important. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to drive traffic there as well by creating more mm-hmm. useful content, blogging more, and so forth. 
but ultimately downloads means uh, and a touch point where someone is actually taking this seriously and evaluating um, Presta. They may be doing their own internal POC. They may be you know playing with it on their laptop. Um, you know, all of those are, I think, really strong indicators of interest. And so that's the metric that I probably look at, you know, most importantly. And uh, if we can, you know, continue to see growth on the download side, I think ultimately that will translate to uh, to revenue as well. Interesting. And and um, so now we are we are onto our last um, uh, sort of uh, stint on this uh, interview. So uh, let's talk about you for a few minutes. Um, so what has been some of the tenets of your success? So if, if I say uh, your ingredients, one to, th one to three sort of aspect that has really helped you um, stay sane so far, what would that be? <laughs> um, staying sane. Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I did everything perfectly in the, in the first startup. I think, um, you know, maybe some of the lessons learned um, in terms of answering that question are, you know, trying to find some balance in your life. I think, you know, like exercise is important, you know, spending time with, with friends and family is very important. Uh, I, I'm the first to admit I did not do a good job of either of those during my first company. Um, so, you know, you, you, no, no matter how sort of mentally driven you are, I think physically it can wear you down if you don't mm. do those things. So, um, so that's definitely one, you know, major, um, I don't know, example of, uh, I guess, maturing as an entrepreneur, I think is, is taking the time to sort of do those recharge type of activities. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, trying to think of uh, what else I would say, say to that. I mean, I think, I think that's probably, uh, you know, the biggest lesson learned uh, along the way. Um, you know, hiring great people is always an important uh, challenge as well. Um, you know, we're very lucky to, to already have a great team that we're starting with in this case. So that actually makes that job a lot easier. If I had to go out and, and hire, you know, 15 great engineers from scratch, that would be that would be a lot harder, um, mm. but you know we certainly had to do that the first time, and it and it's hard, um, especially right now. The market is just incredibly mm. hot, so um, it's hard to get people to think about switching. Um, and as a startup, you know it's it's very hard to compete with the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, just in terms of the the comp that they offer and uh, and so forth. So, um, but that's that's always an important thing. I think the the team that that you build. Uh, Finding the right people, hiring the great, the right people, and keeping the right people is, is really important. Okay, interesting, and uh, thank you for sharing that. So, do you have any favorite reads um, that you could share with our with our listeners and, and viewers? Um, well, on the topic of, uh, I guess, entrepreneurship, I really like uh, the hard thing about hard things by mm -hmm. Ben Horowitz. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've read plenty of sort of business books and startup books over the years, and, and that's probably my favorite simply because it's so practical. Uh, I think a lot of uh, business books can be kind of high level and hand wavy, and, and, uh, and his is just very, very down to earth, practical, like real lessons mm. that you would actually deploy tomorrow. Um, mm. uh, and unfortunately, he wrote that book uh, maybe two thirds of the way through Hadap, so I didn't get it in the beginning. <laughs> uh, I, wish, I wish I had. Um, so I, I read it too late, I guess. Uh, he, he wrote it too late. It's, it's you know, but, um, but no, it's, it's an awesome book. And I would definitely recommend it to anyone doing this for the first time. Interesting. And uh, thank you for sharing that. Now we're at the last leg. Uh, so um, with that, th thank you so much, Justin, by the way, for, for being really candid with your time and sharing uh, interesting aspects of your entrepreneurial journey. 
before we part ways, um, love to have your closing remark uh, for our listeners and viewers. Uh, they, what would you want them to take away from this, your journey? Um, well, I mean, I think if someone is aspiring to be an entrepreneur or, or build a business in this space or, or any space, I think probably the biggest key, I guess this goes back to maybe your, your question, sort of keys to success. I, I think the biggest key is just persistence, to be honest with you. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's talent. I don't think it's intellect. I don't think it's creativity. I think it's just persistence. I think um, this is an inherently a, you know, very hard uh, occupation to be in. Um, you know, probably among the most challenging that, that I can think of uh, in terms of uh, just everything that it requires and the, and the inherent stress that comes with it. Uh, and I think those that succeed are the ones who keep pushing, who never mm -hmm. give up and ultimately, um, you know, get it across the finish line at the end of the day. So that sort of stubbornness, I think, is, is really important. I've seen that in a lot of successful entrepreneurs, not, not just myself. Mm -hmm. Um, that I've watched. And uh, I would say that's probably the, the key ingredient. I don't know how you train that. I, that might be something that you either have yeah. or you don't have. But I think that's that's one important thing to sort of look in the mirror and, and see if uh, if you have that, that aspect. Um, you know, additionally, if you're in just the big data space in general, I would say it's an amazing time, again, to be in this space. Um, uh, I think this is a, a great time in particular to be uh, consumers and customers of these technologies. Uh, I think open source has just dramatically improved over the last 10 years. And there's so many you know, great ways to build uh, architectures that will stand the test of time without uh, necessarily having to spend a lot of money. And I think if you can uh, do that, uh, it allows you to do a lot more things with the budget that you do have, which, which is great. Interesting. Uh, with that, uh, thank you so much, Justin, um, uh, for an amazing session uh, for our, our community's aspiring entrepreneurs to take away from from this you're always welcome on the podcast i'd love to have you back and discussing your journey on starbucks wish, wish you nothing but luck um in in its success and um if anyone wants to get in touch with justin and his uh, startup and learning more about um, um uh, presto and and, and starburst uh, i'll put the link on the description so they can check them out and justin again thank you so much and uh, good conversing with you on this great my pleasure it was great great to be with you awesome so uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this.